With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Cass, today is the day. Yay! Last season, we received many, many requests for us to do an episode on the history of plus size fashion. And we did not get to this topic last year, but there is a very good reason for that. And that reason is because we actually had the perfect guest in mind, but she was in the final phases of completing her PhD dissertation on this very subject. I mean, let a lady finish before you start knocking on her door being like, come on the show. (laughs) We are so happy this week to finally oblige all of those listener requests and be joined by Dr. Lauren Downing Peters. Dr. Peters is an assistant professor at Columbia College in Chicago and also the editor-in-chief of the Fashion Studies Journal. Lauren, thanks for being here with us today. Welcome, Lauren. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, we're super excited. Um, And I would like to start today by discussing some terminology, because I bet that more than one of our listeners scratched their head when they read the title of this episode, wondering, what the heck is stoutware? (laughs) So what is stoutware, and does it have a modern-day equivalent? So stoutware is basically the early 20th century term for plus size fashion. Um, But what's interesting about it is that it's kind of more age specific. So Mm. whenever retailers and like the culture at large were talking about the stout woman in the early 20th century, they were more so referring to a matronly body. So it was believed that stoutness was more or less a product of advancing age. So women as they became older became more stout, but... What's really interesting is that around the 1920s, you saw advertisers beginning to spin the term in an effort to make the term more fashionable. So you Mm -hmm. had different companies and advertisers selling things like stylish stoutware, which was a way of trying to capture consumers who were not necessarily old, but who had the features of a matronly stout body. So I would say that the closest equivalent we have to today's terminology is plus size fashion, but plus size fashion is more so a blanket term that kind of encapsulates all bodies at all different ages, whereas stoutware was something more particular as it pertains to age. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, I remember the very first time when I ran across this term, when I just happened to be doing like primary research in a fashion magazine in the teens, and it took me back entirely. Like, it's kind of like stopped me in my tracks. I was like, wait, I don't know what this word is. Yeah. And, And I was like, I'd never seen it before. And, you know, it's kind of a term that has been more or less lost to history. Right. And, and at first I, I, I thought that I was like, okay, so in my mind, stout also implicated maybe a, like a petite, what we would call a petite status, yeah. like being short yeah, and also maybe a little curvier. Exactly. Um, but at that time, when, when this term was in parlance, what qualified a woman as being quote unquote stout? So what's really interesting is that, um, the industry itself grappled with using this term. So in the sources I was looking at, which were mainly sources like Women's Wear Daily and the Dry Goods Economist, which are mainly uh, industry trade journals. So it was the industry writing for itself and speaking to itself. So largely they were having these conversations kind of behind closed doors and away from consumers um, who could potentially get offended by these terms. And as far as they were concerned, stoutware was a pejorative, potentially offensive term. So there was this concerted effort to make it fashionable. 
Whenever they were actually defining stoutness, I found several different size grading tables in these sources like Women's Wear Daily. And so on these tables, you see that a stout body began at about a size 42-inch bust, which correlates to a size 14 or 12-ish in today's sizing standards. Mm -hmm. But what's really interesting is that this stout body also had a 30-inch waist, which in today's (laughs) sizing standards correlates more so to a size 8. So I thought that this was really interesting because it really kind of spoke to this early 20th century bodily ideal, which was very much an hourglass kind of Coke bottle physique. Right. What one is probably like 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 a leftover of like corsetry. Exactly. Which was barely even like... In any, in some ways, it still was happening. It was yeah. just barely dying out. Exactly. And so, I mean, one thing that I found throughout my research is that sizing, of course, is not neutral. It's very political. And so the sizing systems and the basis for stoutware was very much based on an ideal of stoutness or um, was also kind of growing from an ideal of ideal feminine beauty during that period as well. Right. Um. One of the things that I found very interesting in some of your writings is that you specifically make the point um, that, in fact, it was actually the fashion media and advertising that, quote unquote, constructed this category of dress. Would you tell us about that? Yeah. um, So in my thesis, I was drawing heavily upon the writing of the philosopher Michel Foucault. and Love um, Foucault. Yeah. Knowledge is power, people. Fashion studies scholars definitely love them them some Foucault, and I'm no exception. (laughs) Um, And so I was really influenced by his text, Discipline and Punish, and also the Archaeology of Knowledge. And um, I especially was drawing from his idea that discourses are more than ways of talking about things. Discourses or languages actually form the objects of which they speak. And so another way of explaining this is that so much of we know about beauty standards and ideals comes from images and the media. Um, So the media, of course, presents ways of being acceptably slender, but also ways of being acceptably human, if we want to extend this idea. setting the boundaries of what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. Exactly. So it's not only uh, fashion studies writing often talks about how the fashion industry projects these kinds of slender normative ideals, but I also find that the fashion media is projecting ideas about what it means to be acceptably fat. And so... um, the fashion media in the early 20th century was presenting ideas about what it mean, meant to be acceptably stout, which was basically tight, contained, and with firm margins. So you could be fat, but everything had to be in the right place. And largely that was going to be an hourglass silhouette. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there were kind of two competing messages that were being put forth in the fashion media. So they were talking about, you know, not only how to be slender, but also how to be stout. And so, it's the same as today. If you pick up any fashion magazine, they're going to be talking about current fashion trends, what was on the runways, but they're also going to be talking about dieting and Mm -hmm. exercise. And it was the same thing in the early 20th century as well. So you had these competing ideas about how to be slender, but also how to improve your body in the vein of trying to attain the slender ideal. So it was also a lot about looking slender, even if you were fat or non-normative in right. your body presentation. And, and one of the other th- interesting things in um, your dissertation, I thought, was that you say that the, the most frequent mentions of the stout woman actually happen in advertising. Exactly. And, and it's usually advertising in the context of um, corrective products that can help you 
not beast out. Yeah. Do you want to mention a few of your favorite ads or, or, or types of things that were advertising to the stout woman? Yeah. So like this is actually like really speaking to a huge problem I had with primary sources in my thesis. So um, I feel like fashion historians and fashion scholars tend to focus their energies on looking at editorial content and uh, fashion spreads, like fashion shoots. But we often overlook the material that's actually in the classified sections of magazines. So the I kind of stuff that's I always in, tell my students this. Yeah. Read everything. Exactly. Like, all that contextual stuff is like a lot of gold. Exactly. And so there's a misperception that like magazines like Vogue and Bazaar were mainly created for women in the upper echelons of society, but that's not true. Like everybody was buying these magazines and you can see that whenever you look at the classified sections of magazines where there were advertisements, not only for like smaller kind of everyday garment manufacturers, but also dieting, you know, Mm -hmm. supplements and um, gimmicks for things like rubber weight reducing corsets and which which Emma and I talked about in the fashion and physique episode yeah which were really really pervasive so it's almost like you had these ideals that were being perpetuated in the main part of the magazine but then whenever you went to the back of the magazines you had these solutions to these problems and oftentimes they were branded as very quick fixes so it was also around this time that you had uh, mainly insurance companies that were creating bodily ideals through uh, the body through tables like the body mass index and these were also kind of being incorporated into standard sizing systems as well so women were looking for these very quick fixes uh, for how to fit into contemporary fashions and you can find these quick fixes in the classified sections of magazines during this period and and even like the tables that you're referencing like those whether they're outside of the insurance industry or not they carry over into like you know the 20s 30s 40s a lot of these fashion magazines are like literally publishing like statistics of like if you are this tall this is what your waist size should be and this is what your weight should be exactly they were common this was common yeah and I mean it's like if you also think about the standardized sizing rather as a technology um it's almost like a surefire way, like easy way to understand the variance of human diversity in terms Mm -hmm. of the body. So there is a direct correlation between standardized sizing and these body mass index tables, but also like new efforts to weigh the body during the early 20th century. So you also had the emergence of penny scales and um, photography and the moving image that kind of policed the body to use Foucault's language. So right. people were seeing their body in more kind of minute detail than they had ever seen before. So people could go out and have pictures taken of themselves and they could see their bodies for the first time in this kind of two-dimensional objective way. And they could also weigh their bodies and also more importantly, weigh their bodies against a standard. Right. So so this, this, this brings up um, a, a really interesting question. Like what is the relationship between the rise of the stoutware industry, what you were just talking about in terms of technology and this idea of fat stigma. Mm -hmm. So the emergence of the ready-to-wear industry is crucial for understanding the emergence of the stoutware industry. So um, the very earliest sizing systems date back to uh, the mid-1800s, and they correspond with the Civil War and yeah. the necessity of Uniforms. outfitting thousands and millions of conscripts mm-hmm. in uh, standardized sized garments. And it wouldn't be until later in the 1800s, closer into the 1900s, that they would actually begin surveys of women's bodies. These surveys, however, 
were undertaken at elite women's colleges like Smith and <laughs> Pratt. And so if you're thinking about the kinds of women that were attending these elite universities in the late 1800s, early 1900s, they were more often than not slender, white, young women. And so our entire sizing system is based off of this perceived norm that veers towards white and slender. And so whenever we're thinking about stoutness, it's always going to be defined in relation to this slender norm. Right. And we're actually going to get into that in Mm -hmm. a little bit about like your research into references to Stoutware in the context of women of color and also men Mm -hmm. in a little bit. But first, we're going to take a sponsor break. We'll be back in a second. Welcome back. So, Lauren, if I understand correctly, starting somewhere around 1915, there begins to be a great deal of chatter within fashion trade publications about this quote-unquote new category of dress. What was so suddenly exciting for the industry about stoutware? Yeah, so it has a lot to do with what I mentioned before uh, regarding the emergence of the ready-to-wear industry as a whole. So one scholar that I really, really like with regard to this like kind of line of thinking is uh, actually an accounting scholar named Ingrid Jekyll, <laughs> who has an amazing paper about standardized sizing as a technology of the body. And she argues that as soon as we implement standards for understanding what a normal body looks like, we also create categories of non-normal yeah, bodies. absolutely. So as soon as the industry, um, you know, for better or for worse, there are also like limitations to industry and they had to figure out the best way to outfit the largest number of people possible. They also created categories of bodies that didn't fit into that standardized sizing system. So this was where the early plus size or stoutware industrialists kind of emerged because they realized that there were whole categories of consumers who couldn't participate in this quintessential experience of modernity, which was going into a department store and buying a garment off the rack or being able to consult a catalog like Montgomery Wards or Sears to buy a ready-made garment. So these stoutware entrepreneurs were kind of looking at these actuarial tables and statistics that were coming from the insurance industry as well as the medical industry. And they were arguing that upwards of 30% of the American buying public was stout, rather the female buying public was stout. And so they were, you saw this statistic kind of brandied about like multiple places within Mm. the professional fashion media where they were saying that 33% of this consumer base is stout. We need to capture this consumer base. And hence, that's why we need to have a stoutware industry that not only caters to, you know, them as a consumer, but also kind of creates garments that are tailored to their non-normative abnormal bodies. And they use much more kind of problematic pejorative language than I'm using yeah, now. Yeah, like they used the word freak in an article. They did. They called them freaks. They talked about, one of the most interesting things I saw is that they actually talked about the abnormal qualities of the fat woman's flesh. So it's not uncommon to see accounts within the professional media where they talk about the fluid flowing qualities of the stout woman's body and how her body actually kind of flowed into the creases and seams of garments. And it was a completely different object to outfit than the normal standardized rational body, which has a lot to do with, you know, modernist ideals that were also kind of circulating during this period in the early 20th century. Right. And again, I guess I I keep like coming back to this point, but this point of like that a woman's body should not be jiggly yeah, or shake in yeah. any way, shape or form 
this is still yet a layover of the fact that Corsetry had only died a few decades earlier or or was like, again, still like dying out that like you, if, even if you were a larger woman, when you were wearing your corset, your form was tight. Exactly. And this is Valerie Steele's argument, right? Where the external corset was replaced with the internal corset. And a lot of this had to do with the logic of modernism and the parallelisms between the rational body of modernism and the machine age. And then also, um, you know, what it took for this body to fit into standard sizes as well. So there's like a really interesting dialogue between um, modernist artistic discourse, um, machine age technology, and then also standardized sizing that I think has been like really like largely neglected in the fashion literature. We come back to this again and again and again, and that the history of technology is also the history of fashion. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Which has been largely neglected in the literature because so often fashion studies is feminized and neglected (laughs) and marginalized. Um, I would like to turn our attention to some of the earliest purveyors of stoutware. And we can start with a name that our listeners probably already know. As early as 1902, Sears and Roebuck was offering clothing options to both tall and stout women. Can you tell us how they were providing these types of garments? Yeah, so Sears is a really interesting case because from the get-go, they boasted about their ability to fit consumers of all shapes and sizes, but it was always with an asterisk. So they could fit anybody. And what was really interesting was whenever you were ordering from a Sears catalog in the early 1900s, you wouldn't order based on a size. You would send them your body measurements and they would send you a garment tailored to fit your body measurements based of course on like standardized sizing. But during that period, people weren't familiar with the idea of their own size. So Right. And and that is just because like historically, Women were either making their own clothes, right, or you were going to a dressmaker or tailor who was um, cr- creating the clothes made to measure for you. So this point in the 1890s and the early 1900s is this point of transition between um, custom made garments and ready to wear. Exactly. And what's really interesting with regard to this issue of fat stigma that you asked about earlier is that these stoutware entrepreneurs in some sense believed that the stout woman was completely unfamiliar with the practice of buying garments in standardized sizes. So they felt it was their responsibility to teach women how to shop um, because they were ignorant, they were lazy, they were slothful, like all of these kinds of pejorative ideas that we, you know, assign to obese bodies in the contemporary context were also very prevalent in the early 20th century as well. So whenever it came to buying large sizes or outsizes through catalog shopping, again, Sears, Montgomery Ward, they promised that they could outfit the entire spectrum of, you know, human bodily diversity, but there was always an asterisk. So, you could buy something that fit your bust measurement and your waist measurement and maybe even your hip measurement, but there was always an expectation that the buyer would have to tailor their garment to fit their height. So there was always this assumption that the buyer had some basic understanding of tailoring and garment fit and that they could hem their garment to fit their particular height. So there was always some variability. Um, Oftentimes, these stoutware garments were also more expensive Mm -hmm. than their standard size counterparts because of you know, the perceived um, extra expense of additional materials, which um, the truth of whether or not it actually cost more to produce these garments is kind of up in the air as it is today. And one of the companies that kind of tackled this idea of this additional expense 
was actually another company that a lot of our uh, listeners will know about, which is Lane Bryant. Mm -hmm. Lane Bryant has been around for a very long time. Mm -hmm. This is not a relatively new company. What can you tell us about the early history of Lane Bryant? So Lane Bryant's fascinating in the context of the history of plus-size fashion because she actually started her business in 1900, mainly doing tailoring custom alterations, but she was also one of the first innovators in maternity wear. Mm -hmm. So I think that she had, if I have my dates correct, I think that she had her earliest maternity wear advertisement in vogue in 1904. And this was revolutionary at the time. Like You did not talk about being pregnant or you did not talk about pregnancy clothes. You did not go out in public at certain points in your pregnancy. Exactly. Um, And there's um, a lot of new interesting research in this realm, but one of the greatest innovations of Lane Bryant during this period is that she actually innovated in the realm of the uh, adjustment skirt waist Mm -hmm. um, and the tie waist skirt. So she created garments that would actually grow with the wear throughout the course of her pregnancy. Um, Flash forward to about 1909, whenever Lena Bryant um, married a Lithuanian immigrant named Albert Malson. And Albert Malson was an engineer by trade. And he looked at what Lena was doing with her adjustable skirts and realized that her skirts could be adapted to stout women or fat women. And he thereafter created a number of patents between 1909 and 1911 in which he um, created these adjustable skirts specifically for stout women along with different garments like corsets and shirtwaists and things. Um, And by about 1915, they had a fully fledged plus size or stout wear industry. Albert Melson definitely eclipsed his wife in terms of publicity. And this is a really interesting story, I think, because um, it's another example of how women's labor is marginalized in the fashion industry. And Albert Malson was, you know, such a kind of PR hog. He yeah. was like doing interviews with Women's Wear Daily and with the Richmond Times-Dispatch, where he was not only kind of, you know, opining on the possibility of the stoutware design, he was also kind of coming up with an entirely new sizing system. He claimed to have interviewed thousands of Lane Bryant customers and taken anthropometric surveys of their bodies and came up with an entirely new sizing system, which roughly, you know, corresponds to our Apple Pear Hourglass taxonomy, which we use mm-hmm. today arguing that, um, you know, correctly, that fat women's bodies don't grow with the same regularity as standard women's bodies. So he argued that instead of having a single sizing system, we need to take into account the ratios between the bust, the waist, and the hips to better fit their bodies. And um, this, for better or for worse, is a standard that has persisted throughout the 20th and 21st centuries. Right. And one of the intriguing things about Malson is, like, he is promoting what he's doing as being, quote-unquote, scientific. Like this word science and scientific is like all over the place in the primary sources when you come to him. Yeah. Not only him, but like some other people that were kind of working a little bit later after him. Like what was this fascination between the fashion industry and science in terms of stoutware. Yeah, so I feel like Nelson was kind of engaging in this very masculinist, modernist discourse. It almost felt like he was trying to elevate the science of fashion design to a higher plane. So oftentimes he was invoking the language of the high arts and architecture whenever yes. he was talking about stoutware. That was so interesting to me in your dissertation about like the whole, the whole that you had like a whole thing about like, architects and the relationship to fashion yeah. and all these different references. And it was like, yeah. And what's interesting, it was a lot is, was that it was a lot of men who were using this language. So Albert Malson quite notably in his interviews with uh, newspapers was talking about how 
The goal of stoutware designers should be to attain the height, slenderness, and airy grace of high Gothic architecture. So he was like very interestingly and very problematically equating fat women's bodies with buildings, buildings made of masonry, gigantic <laughs> brick houses. Buildings. Exactly. You're a brick house. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so he was saying that, you know, we could attain this perfection in the women's body if we thought more like architects. And so in his, you know, illustrations in the fashion media, he was using a lot of kind of modernist lines arguing that um, if we like created these upward thrusting lines that created the appearance of a slender waist, the wearer could look taller, which would make her appear more thin. Again, like these are ideas that are also very, very pervasive in modern dress discourse. Um, He was also really interestingly using um, theories of gestalt psychology. And this was super fascinating. And this was pervasive across the fashion literature as well. So you had people um, across the United States that were using gestalt optical theories, like Mm. optical illusions, saying that, you know, the goal of dressing as a stout woman should not only be to find garments that fit your body, but garments that should also make you appear more slender. So... Malson's goal was kind of twofold. He argued that the stout woman's dress should fit her body well, but it should also make her appear more slender. And what's so interesting to me is that this idea of slenderizing the body or flattering the figure persists yeah, in the discourses of not only plus size fashion, but women's dress in general to this day. Yeah. And I think we're going to get yes. in, more into that here in a second. Um, Lane Bryant, of course, takes us all the way in to the contemporary plus size market. But before we get to some of these contemporary issues of today, what can you tell us about the trajectory of the stoutware industry from the middle and later half of the 20th century? And how does this relate to the shifting notions of the ideal quote unquote modern body? Sure. So, um, this story has everything to do with the trajectory of America as a superpower in mid-century. So the discussions of stoutware in the fashion media really drop off after 1930. And what's so fascinating is that the advertisers and designers during this period argued that the stoutware industry was untenable after 1930 because there, quote, were no more stout women. They believed that the stout race had been decimated and that there was no longer a buying public for this category of dress, which is patently ridiculous right. and untrue. Well, it's the height of the Great Depression. Exactly. It's the height <laughs> of the Great Depression. So, like, there's something to be said for perhaps, like, the general, like, poverty of the era and also the emergence of a new, more body-conscious ideal. So, if you think about the fashion silhouette in the 1920s, it very much kind of hung from the shoulders and was very almost relaxing. Like There was a tightness around the waist, but it was a straight line silhouette that in many ways was more accommodating of multiple body Mm -hmm. types and body shapes. So there was literally more room for the stout woman in fashion in the 1920s. By the 1930s, you had the bias cut that was becoming more popular. You had the emergence of the cinema, which again, like kind of like is a tension with the Great Depression. But nevertheless, there was this glamour of the cinema in the 1930s, which was very much more body conscious, very much more feminine. And I think that there was just literally less room for the stout woman in fashion during this period. It wasn't that fat women disappeared. No. Every era has its fat woman. Um, and the way that we refer to them and what we call them changes with every passing generation. But I think it this disappearance of stout wear had a lot more to do with changing bodily ideals in Mm -hmm. the 1930s. Um, You wouldn't have 
a resurgence of um, kind of corporate industry discussion of the stout consumer until the 1950s with the emergence of chubby fashion. Can we just talk about this for a second? Because on more than one occasion in special collections, I've just been going about my day, minding my own business, and run across like advertisements for children's chubby wear. Yeah. And you're like, oh. Yeah. Like, it's one thing to like do this to an adult, but like to put that on a child, it's like, it's that's rough. It's, it is. And it's like a project that I hope to do in the future, because I think that the mid-century history of plus size fashion and stout wear, whatever you want to call it, has a lot to do with our changing relationship to diet and food in the mid-century. So you had, you know, people moving to the suburbs and increasing the reliance upon the automobile. You had this shift in the American diet and also a new affluence, which led to, you know, potentially fatter Americans. And, you saw this most um, visibly in the discourse of like young children's clothing, which was labeled as chubby. But the competing discourse around this time was the American look, right? Which right. was coined by Dorothy Shaver in the 1930s and was kind of a propaganda tool for defining Americanness. And, you know, as you saw it in Life magazine, the American body was a body that was young slender, white. She had long legs. She was clean. Like all of these very kind of perfect like, teeth, perfect teeth, um, well shod. She had good yes. shoes. She, yes. her, her hair was brushed well. It was all of these kind of nationalist ideals about like cleanliness and order, um, which the fat body like stood in stark contraposition to. So in mid-century, it was almost like there was no room for a stoutware industry for people whose bodies kind of exceeded these standards or what constituted an American body. And you really wouldn't see a resurgence in a plus size or large size garment industry until the late late 1970s, early 1980s. Yeah. Um, and it, for any of you listeners who are interested in the quote-unquote American look that Lauren just referred to, um, we've already done an episode with uh, Dr. Rebecca Arnold about that. So you can go to our past episode and learn more about that. As you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation, so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. So you mentioned that this kind of like resurgence didn't occur until the 1970s. But my question is, when did this term stoutware fall out of favor? And and what parallels exist between the practice of marketing clothing to fuller-figured women between, let's say, 1919 and 2019, like in, within the last century? Like, has the industry significantly changed? 
Yeah, um, it's a really interesting question. We're kind of making like what Ulrich Lehmann would call like a tiger's leap between past and present. <laughs> um, it's it's the thing that kept striking me during my research is that there are so many parallels between past and present. So, you know, again, like the emergence of the term stoutware had so much to do with this emerging idea of the modernist body and the rational body and the body that was produced through the machine age and through mm-hmm. technology. And Today, um, the present concern with the plus size body, uh, which is, I think, something you want to talk about a bit later, has a lot to do with the emergence. Oh, right of, now, whenever now. you're ready, <laughs> has a lot to because, do with the, because Lauren is a badass fashion activist. <laughs> yeah, um, it has a lot to do with the emergence of the body positivity movement. So, I mean, I first started my research in this area during my master's at Parsons, and I was looking at the dress practices of self-identifying fat women who worked in the fashion industry and how they negotiated the stigmatized identity with Um, being fashionable. And this kind of corresponded directly with this new resurgence of interest in body positivity, which has direct correlations with projects that date back to the 1990s and early 2000s in what was known as the fatosphere, which was basically this uh, fat activist corner of the internet where there were a lot of uh, fashion blogs, conflating (laughs) fat and fashion, uh, as well as uh, forums where people talked about the experience of being fat and the experience of buying clothes and all this kind of stuff. And so the stuff that they were talking about on these forums and blogs directly led to our present preoccupation with body positivity and kind of rejecting Mm -hmm. all of these norms. Um, So social media, what you're saying, or the internet, in a lot of ways has played a ginormous role. Once again, technology and fashion cannot be separated um, in in changing this dialogue because it wasn't like people were being advertised to. Mm -hmm. It's not you're being talked at. People are now having this dialogue with each other. Yeah. And like, I think the parallel, like to return to your original question, I think the parallel between the two periods is this democratization of fashion. There's like a number of amazing texts out there that talk about how the emergence of the ready-to-wear industry permitted Americans to be the best-dressed average people in the world. Like we didn't shy away from mass manufacturing ready-to-wear. We leaned into it and it was kind of a cherished American tradition that everybody could dress well and there wasn't this class differentiation in dress. Flash forward to today and we're also talking about the democratization of dress through fast fashion. And I think social media has only enabled multiple voices for people to increasingly advocate for themselves to have more options in fashion. And so people are no longer content um, to, you know, just buy what they're offered, which is oftentimes if I'm talking about plus size women, it's mainly these moralizing garments that tell them that they should be hiding their body or reshaping their body. Um, people are seeing options based, you know, from the fatosphere, from these blogs, but they're also empowered to call out brands that don't cater to them specifically. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, that, and that was something that Emma kind of touched upon, and you were part of that exhibition also, mm-hmm. too, um, in her fashion and physique exhibition. And we didn't talk about this. Emma and I did not talk about this, but will you tell us about the um, Christian Suriano garment that's in that was in the exhibition? Yeah, so he created a garment for Leslie... Jones. Leslie Jones, exactly. Um, and so what was so interesting about Leslie Jones is that... You She's know, the SNL actress. Yeah, for Amazing, those who aren't familiar. One of my favorites. Yeah, and so she, you know, had 
had to attend a couple of award shows and no designers would outfit her. So she took to social media saying, you know, complaining about this. And Christian Siriano kind of swooped into the rescue and designed a garment for her, which was on display at the Fashion and Physique Exhibition. But he's gone on to like basically design for all of her red carpet appearances. Right. And not only her, but also like a number of plus size starlets yeah. and also women of like non-conventional proportions who have had a hard time, you know, getting these kind of partnerships with mainstream designers. Also women of advanced age, they have mm-hmm. a hard time finding these partnerships because, you know, again, the fashion industry promotes a very young, youthful, white bodily ideal and mm-hmm. any bodies that fall outside of that range are, you know, rendered not desirable yeah. and rendered not something that designers want to want to design for. So Leslie Jones is a really interesting example of how designers are breaking down these um, conventions and norms. To- right, right, right. Well, and also too, just like thinking that like right now, statistics say that the average American woman is a size 16. Exactly. Right? So if you are a fashion brand in the United States or wherever you are, and you're only designing up to a 12. Yeah. You are excluding half of your market. Yeah. And that's what's so interesting about, again, about the parallelisms between 2019 and, you know, 1919 is that early in the 20th century, they were advocating for the viability of the sector of the garment industry. And even today, you have to have people like myself and other writers who are advocating for the profitability of the sector for the industry. It's not only kind of like a social justice issue. It's just like good business right. to, you know, it's design for this category. It's a win-win-win. Exactly. And, you know, increasingly, I think we're seeing that, like, brands that don't cater to this wider demographic and which aren't inclusive, size inclusive, are not going to to make it. Like, brands like J. Crew and Madewell, for example, caught a lot of flack for not designing for women of, you know, multiple body sizes. Even Lululemon, again, like, they had a very, like, disastrous PR moment where they were saying that, you know, fat women shouldn't wear their leggings because they're they're too big. Right. Yeah. Well, and speaking of diversity, um, I said we would talk about this earlier. Um, I, I I know the answer to this because you and I have talked about this. Mm-hmm. But um, in your research on Statware, what, if any, marketing did you find directed towards women of color or men? Because this is fascinating. Yeah. Um, there was actually very little. I yeah. mean, the stout body as it was constructed and discussed in the fashion media was very much a white Western heteronormative feminine beauty ideal. You wouldn't really see any direct marketing to women of color until about mid-century with the emergence of Jet and Ebony magazines, which catered to their um, African-American demographic largely. But the stoutware industry completely neglected women of color. If anything, it was furthering this kind of nationalist agenda of what constituted an American normal body. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then men, like, we, there's, I mean, nothing to say about them. Like... <laughs> They've always been kind of catered to with their diversity of body shapes by the fashion industry. At the same time, Sears and Montgomery Ward were kind of putting this asterisk next to women's sizing. Um, They boasted the ability to suit men of every size. And, uh, you know, as the century would progress, we would see the emergence of terms like kingly and big and tall and all of these terms that connoted power and status, whereas the women's terms tended to marginalize their their bodies and would be pejorative. And once again, from 1919 to 2019, not much has changed. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, So what do you think the critical issues are in the current plus size fashion industry? And what do you hope for for the future? 
So there's a lot of discussion occurring around terminology. And um, one of the interesting and problematic things I've seen is that there's been a lot of attempts uh, by very vocal figures in the plus size fashion industry to abolish the term plus size. Mm -hmm. I understand why this debate is happening, but I also can understand the necessity of the term. I think that as soon as we have a fashion industry that is truly inclusive, meaning that the moment that a woman who is a size double zero and a woman who is a size 22 can shop off the same rack. That's whenever we've achieved true inclusivity and size parity. But until we've reached that kind of utopian moment where women of all shapes and sizes can shop off the same rack, we need these terms in order to designate different sectors of the industry. Because, you know, I've seen efforts by brands to be truly size inclusive, whether it's online brands or within stores. And it just kind of creates a logistical nightmare for women to be able to identify where they can and cannot shop. So, I mean, one of the interesting things that's happened with the abolishment of the term plus size is that it's been replaced with the term curvy. Mm -hmm. But for me, that's just, you know, kind of different words for talking about the same thing. Right. We've seen multiple terms used throughout the long 20th century to refer to the woman of size. Right, which is why you, throughout this interview, have been using the term fat. Like, you in your dissertation, like, address that right up front about, right. like, terms are very problematic. Yeah. So I'm going to use the term of the period that I'm speaking in. Exactly. And so I'm, as a fashion studies scholar, I kind of straddle multiple disciplines. So I use dress historical methods. Um, I'm also using cultural historical methods in addition to fat studies, like language and terminology. And so in that vein, I've adopted the fat studies language that fat is used as a neutral descriptor for referring to the woman of size because all of these other terms are cultural constructs. And they're also products of their era, which merit investigation. But um, if you just look at the long 20th century, you can see the variety of terms used to refer to the woman of size from matronly to stout to chubby to plus size to curvy. Um, again, I don't know what the utility is in abolishing terms until we have a truly inclusive fashion industry, which the good thing is that we see brands moving towards this. Universal yeah. Standard is a wonderful example where they create garments from double zero to size 40. Other brands have a long way to go, but this should be what brands are moving towards right. because that's what customers expect now. And unless they do that, they're going to uh, get flack on social media, I think, which says a lot. Lauren? Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> this was so fun. Like, um, just doing this entire episode, I learned so, 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 so much. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And a lot of people have been asking for this episode. So you're going to make Great. a lot of people out there happy. Happy to deliver. <laughs> Lauren, thank you so much for joining us today. I think that many of our listeners will be surprised that the company Lane Bryant has such a long and storied history. Agreed. I mean, I'm sure our listeners in the U.S. are familiar with this brand, but it wasn't until a few years ago that even I was aware that the company was founded a full century ago. And even the Lane Bryant website doesn't really provide a history of the brand, which I think is a little bit of a shame because I think their customers would love to know more. And to know more about how they really spent a lot of time studying body types in order to provide better options in the light of their eyes of ready-to-wear. I mean, we still have a ways to go in terms of providing sizes for the beautiful rainbow of body types that exist in the world. But there are some tech companies that are very hard at work on this. Right now, you're actually able to buy 
personal 3D body scanners that will send your measurements to clothing brands. And then those brands will make your clothing custom to your measurements. You know, this technology is still a little bit expensive and there's only a handful of clothing brands that are working in this manner. But I really believe, Cass, that this is truly the future of fashion. That does it for us this week. May you all contemplate the concept of standardized sizing next time you get dressed. Please join us Thursday for our fashion history mystery mini-sode. And if you'd like to pose a question for us to answer on an upcoming episode, please write to us at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM and follow us on Instagram for images to accompany each week's episode at dressed underscore podcast. This is also our Twitter handle. And you can follow us on Facebook at dressed podcast without the underscore. Want some fashion history swag? Check out our merch store at tpublic.com forward slash dressed. That's T-E-E-Public.com forward slash dressed. And we just posted three new designs um, on which you can get on tees, totes, mugs, all sorts of really fun things. And we did, Cass, you posted some images of those new designs on our Instagram last week. Yes, listeners, do you know your worth, a.k.a. Charles Frederick Worth? Or my personal favorite is Poiret All Day. And I think April's is the custom artwork by our dear friend, Loretta May Hirsch on Elsa Scaparelli. Yes. So uh, last but not least, uh, if you would like to learn more about Dr. Peters and her work with Fashion Studies Journal, it's actually an online journal. So you can just search Fashion Studies Journal and that will come up. The site will come up and you can read articles, uh, really wonderful articles written by fashion historians on a variety of topics from all over the world. That does it for us today. Thank you to our producers, Holly Fry, Casey Pegram, and everyone else over at iHeartMedia that makes the show possible each week. Catch you Thursday.